Macy's summer stretches before her, carefully planned and outlined. She will spend her days sitting at the library information desk. She will spend her evenings studying for the SATs. Spare time will be used to help her obsessive mother prepare for the big opening of the townhouse section of her luxury development. But Macy's plans don't anticipate a surprising and chaotic job with Wish Catering, a motley crew of new friends, or Wes. Tattooed, artistic, anything but expected, Wes. He doesn't fit Macy's life at all, so why does she feel so comfortable with him? So happy. What is it about him that makes her let down her guard and finally talk about how much she misses her father, who died before her eyes the year before? Sarah Dessen delivers a page-turning novel that carries readers on a roller coaster of denial, grief, comfort, and love as we watch a broken but resilient girl pick up the pieces of her life and fit them back together. Doesn't that summary just make you feel things? I know. That's why I had to go ahead and read the whole thing to get us started with today's episode. It's a total vibe, just like Sarah Dessen's The Truth About Forever, which was published in 2004 and, according to the internet, is the favorite Dessen book for many, many readers. I'll just go ahead and let you know right now. It's easily my favorite of the Sarah Dessen novels we've covered on the podcast. On today's episode, The Truth About Forever inspires conversations about terrible boyfriends, dreamy love interests, complicated mother-daughter relationships, perfectionism, and grief. We also examine the way our society as a whole has evolved its approach to processing tragedy, share our hopes for a Netflix adaptation, and marvel at Sarah Dessen's skill as an author. My guest also does some serious fact-checking about how things actually work in a library. Speaking of which, meet my guest, Martha Waters. Martha is the author of the historical rom-coms To Have and to Hoax, To Love and to Loathe, and To Marry and to Meddle. She was born and raised in sunny South Florida and is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which you'll hear quite a bit about in this episode. Now, Martha lives in coastal Maine, where she works as a children's librarian by day and loves sundresses, gin cocktails, and traveling. Find her on Instagram and occasionally on Twitter at Martha B. Waters. Similarly, you can find me on Instagram and occasionally on Twitter at SSRPod. Check us out on Facebook, too, by searching the SSR Podcast. Stay tuned for more details in the next week or so about my plan to consolidate the podcast's other Facebook communities to reboot the free SSR Book Club. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope you'll join us. I also hope you'll consider joining us in the SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club over on Patreon. Membership in this cozy club is one of many exclusive perks you get when you come on board to support the podcast with a few dollars every month. You can be part of SWR at the $5 and $10 tiers, but there's a $1 tier as well. We are now more than halfway through our month-long discussion about Black Cake, and we're now gearing up for our June book club, which will focus on, drumroll please, People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. Can you think of a better way to get into your summer reading? I didn't think so. Learn more about the book club and all the other goodies that come with being an SSR patron at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Episode 194 is brought to you by the AHK Writing Community, which I started last month. I have been absolutely loving this new group and members seem to feel the same way. Check out this note I received on a feedback form I circulated recently. I am finding this space a happy, encouraging place. 
even though I didn't accomplish my writing goals in April, I enjoyed being part of this community. The word amazing was also used to describe our last writing workshop, which made me pretty happy. If you are looking for accountability, encouragement, inspiration, workshops, and general community, whether you are looking to establish writing fiction as a fun hobby or want to write a novel yourself, I would love for you to check out what we are doing. All the details are at www.patreon.com ahkwriters. If you enjoy listening to audiobooks, you need to check out Libro FM. Libro FM is an audiobook marketplace and listening platform that offers an alternative to shopping with giant companies. Now, when you listen to the books on your TBR, you can actually support independent bookstores. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRpodcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Martha. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. We are talking about Sarah Dessen today. And I have to tell you, Martha, that if the social media reaction to the mere glimpse of this book is any indication, this is going to be a very popular very beloved episode. We are talking about the truth about forever. And Martha, okay, listeners, for reference, Martha literally just clutched her chest. (laughs) I really don't want to have a video podcast. Like I'm not a YouTube girl, but when things like that happen, I'm like, oh wow, people need to see. She clutched her chest. So Martha, I am now going to invite you to talk a little bit about your history with both Sarah Dessen and The Truth About Forever. And I can tell based on the heart clutching that there's like a lot, a lot there. So please like take it away. Yeah. So I didn't read that much YA when I actually was a teenager in part because this was in like the kind of pre-Twilight time when it wasn't as much of a thing. But Sarah Dessen was one of the few YA authors that I actually read as a teen because she was like kind of her when she was really becoming famous, like her heyday kind of in the like 2000 to 2010 decade perfectly overlapped with (laughs) me being a YA reader. And I read a few of her books. My sister owned a bunch of them, and so I like borrowed hers and read them. And then I ended up going to college at the University of North Carolina, which is in Chapel Hill, which is the town that the like fictitious town that all of Sarah Dessen's books take place in is based on because she still lives in Chapel Hill. And so at some point during college or grad school, I ended up like doing a deep dive and reading her entire backlist because I was like, well, I can't live in Chapel Hill and like have gaps in my Sarah Dessen reading, obviously. And reading this one was funny because I had read it and I remembered it being my favorite Sarah Dessen book, but I hadn't read it since probably like 2010 or 2011. So it had been a while. And I'd forgotten the whole part where they work at, he works at a library, like they work at a library because I worked at that library. I was a, li- I was a librarian at the public library in Chapel Hill. So 
reading this was a trip. Okay, so Martha, you're a true subject matter expert on Sarah Dessen. I can just leave. Like, I'm just going to leave. Like, I'll just talk for an hour. <laughs> I My job is going to be very easy today. Um, okay, wait. I have so many questions now that I have this information. So this is your favorite Sarah Dessen book. Do you remember why? I remember really loving Wes and like just thinking the like romance in this one was super swoony. And I feel like all the stuff with like her dad having died and everything is obviously really, really sad. And I felt like it, and I don't like like super angsty books, but I always felt like this one really struck the perfect balance of being heavy enough that I felt really emotionally invested in it, but not so heavy to turn me off. Like there are a couple of hers that were a little bit darker than this one that I remember not enjoying as much because they were just like too dark for me. And this one kind of straddled that line perfectly. Um, it narrowly, narrowly beats along for the ride and just listen as my favorite Sarah Dessen. <laughs> well, we have an episode about just listen coming up in a few weeks, actually. Oh, so do you? Sarah Dessen spring right now on the show. So I did read The Truth About Forever when I was a teenager. I've talked about this on our previous Sarah Dessen episodes. I think we've only done two. We did this lullaby and Keeping the Moon, I think. And I talked about this on those episodes, but like I, I feel like I just hit Sarah Dessen at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. It just never really fell into my lap. I read How to Deal because I loved Mandy Moore. And so I saw the movie. And then, of course, I discovered that there was a book. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to read the book. Um, and I had the movie tie-in edition with, like, Mandy Moore and her, like, sassy <laughs> short haircut on the front cover. And I remember it was bright green. And I read that when I was in high school. And for whatever reason, I found the truth about forever when I was in college, which was weird because I was never really a YA reader I think just like why I didn't really become a thing until I was like maybe a little too old for it or at least like I felt like I was too mature for it right and even now like outside of the podcast I don't read a ton of YA so I don't know what compelled me to pick up the truth about forever when I was like at a random Barnes and Noble when I was in college but I did read the truth about forever and so my frame of reference for Sarah Dessen does include this book. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it. And especially with somebody who like knows this author so well. Yeah, she, um, I've been to one of her signings before and she actually, she was like a patron at the library where I worked when I still lived in, when I still lived in Chapel Hill. So I've like interacted with her in a like work capacity before where like she's come in looking for books. So what can you tell us about her? She's very, very nice. Like she loves you. I mean, like she's just really, really nice. I remember I would see her from time to time when she came in and I would often try like not to bother her because I didn't want to be the like a weirdo like following her around the room being like hello famous author hello but there was one time when she came in it was a few months before one of her like new releases was coming out and I had already read it and so I told her that I like had read it and really really enjoyed it and then she tweeted about me later being like I was at the library today and a librarian told me she read whatever the book was and loved it and it was the highlight of my day and I was like oh my god that was me <laughs> So no, she's just, she's very, very nice. Yes, I will note, and I don't remember all of the details right now, but I don't want to fail to mention the fact that she did get into a little bit of social media hot water a few years ago. We won't get into it right now. We ex we discussed it pretty extensively on the Keeping the Moon episode, which I will link in the show notes. I, like I said, I don't remember the exact details, but of course, in our full picture of this author and her work, don't want to forget to mention that. Although it sounds like she is a lovely human and that's what I would expect her to be. Um, I totally understand your fangirling though. I used to work at the same co-working space as Emma Straub Whoa! <laughs> and I would like creepily just watch her write and now that this time tomorrow is on the verge of coming out as we're recording I'm like I wonder if she was writing this time tomorrow like <laughs> 
I'm so excited. Um, so yeah, I get that. And we're obviously like really cool, chill girls who don't do embarrassing things around Never. famous authors. Never. Okay. So this book was Sarah Dessen's sixth novel. It was published in 2004. I, for some reason, like, I don't know why I thought that it was later. Maybe it's because I came to it later. I think I thought it was later as well. And then I looked up the, I listened to it on audio this time. And so when I finished listening, I went and looked up when it came out. Cause I was like, I was thinking it was like 2008 or 2009. And I was like, oh no, it was like earlier than that. Yeah. Because I graduated in high school in 2008. So I would have picked it up at this like random Barnes and Noble visit sometime between 2008 and 2012. I wonder if they like re-promoted it for some reason around that time. They did reissue a bunch of her books around that time with like new covers. I remember, um, I remember it was, a, it was like around like 2010 or 2011. Cause it was right when I was finishing college in Chapel Hill, they like reissued a bunch of them in paperback with new covers. So it might've been part of that. Yeah. I had this cover. I remember it's not the same cover that I, that I picked up for our conversation. It had like a pink flower on it. Does that mm-hmm. ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Maybe that was one of the reissues, but did you know that the audiobook is like award-winning? Is it? It's really good on audio, I have to say. So yeah, it won um, a big audiobook award uh, in 2006, I think. So I'm happy that you listened to it because I came across that little factoid, and I was wondering if you had any experience with it. Yeah, I, I like. I definitely read it like in hard copy when I read it originally, like 10 years ago. And then I, I oftentimes, if I'm doing a reread, like to do it on audio. If I didn't do it on audio originally, because I'm always just curious. And like, also if it's a reread, I'm less worried about missing a single sentence and then like not understanding the rest of the book, which is an issue for me with audiobooks sometimes. But no, it was really, really good on audio. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm trying to get more into audiobooks and I'm finding that I'm enjoying rereads more. Um, unfortunately, I can't use audiobooks for the podcast just because I take so many notes. Yeah. But I'm trying to like lean into audiobooks for adult sort of like just for fun books mm-hmm. that I want to experience again. And that's been working really well for me. So let's talk about the truth about forever, which in itself is an extremely dramatic title. What are your thoughts on the title, Martha? I had forgotten. I was like, how does it, like when I started reading it again, I was like, I remember this one being like something sad happens with her family. And then like, what is the, and I was like, I feel like the title must be like relevant somehow. But when I started reading it, I really thought that the title was just like for vibes kind of. And I was <laughs> Like it really fits with like my, I feel like it helps me like keep this one sort of like centered as like remembering vaguely what had happened in it and like remembering my feelings about it is that it has kind of a dramatic sort of like sad sounding title. And so I, I found the title, like, I think it's very key to my relationship with this book of like, I, I really, cause I always get some of her other ones mixed up. I can't figure, I can't remember which ones are which cause she's written like several books now. Yeah, many. But Truth About Forever really sticks with me because I feel like the title totally like fits the tone of the book. Yes. And I'm actually wondering now, like I have this chicken or the egg question in my head because she really hits it hard throughout Mm -hmm. the book with mentions of truth and mentions of forever. And we can talk more later about how we feel about that. But now I'm wondering like, do we think she had the title first and she was like, now I really need to get into truth and forever or... Was she just reading her manuscript and she was like, wow, I am really exploring these concepts of truth and forever. And I'm just going to like wind those words together and create a really powerful title. I will say I like from a writer's perspective, I have never come up with a title before I have written the book. But I will say sometimes in books like this, I do wonder about it when the title fits like so perfectly to the content of the book. But like to me, it seems like it'd be really hard to write a book with a title in mind, like and trying to like fit your content to that. So I kind of assume they came up with it after the fact, but like, 
I don't know. I'll, I'll move back to Chapel Hill and accost her the next time she comes to the library and ask her. I mean, I would be happy. I would be like thrilled if you did that. So don't, sure, like go forth, let us know how it goes. <laughs> um, but yeah, my manuscript that I'm working on, everybody's always like, what's the title? And that's their first question. I'm like, I don't know. But with this book, I was like, it kind of seems like maybe she had an idea or at least she she was thinking that these were the themes that she wanted to lean into. And then the title flowed naturally from there. And then she started writing. But we meet Macy, who is 17, and she lives in North Carolina, like all of Sarah Dessen's heroines. And that is a very cute cat. It's being very um, not helpful right now. <laughs> no, that's okay. Listeners, if you heard meowing, it's I'm telling you it's coming from a very cute little animal, so forgive the meowing. What is that beautiful animal's name? Puffin, and I live in a <gasps> studio apartment, so I can't like lock her away anywhere when I'm recording, so periodically she just meows in the background. <laughs> Don't you dare lock Puffin away. Puffin <laughs> is really cute. Okay, Puffin, welcome to the podcast. Okay, so Macy, she's a perfectionist, and that is the part of her character that I'm most related to because it's it's something that I am working on in my own life is my perfectionism something that I have certainly not overcome, even though I've been in therapy and discussed it thoroughly for several years now. In addition to being a perfectionist, Macy is experiencing a lot of grief that she is suppressing. Uh, Her father passed away a year ago. Not only did he pass away, but she actually was there when it happened. He had come to get her to go for a morning run. She was a really great runner and she was too tired to go with him. So she sort of like waved him out of the room and then she was feeling guilty. So she went to catch up with him. And when she saw him, it was in the throes of the early stages of a heart attack. And she rode in the ambulance with him to the hospital. And you can kind of guess listeners, if you have not read this book, how it ends, and it's just really sad. But because she is a perfectionist and her mom has really high expectations for her, she hasn't really allowed herself to feel those feelings. On top of that, she has this boyfriend who we need to talk about his name is jason he is the worst the worst holy moly he is the literal worst martha where should we start with macy and kind of her situation her circumstances when we meet her at the beginning of the book it's like basically she has this boyfriend who is truly the worst like just this like perfectionist like goober who works at the works at the public library and i could write an entire like article about the workplace dynamics at this library that appears to be run entirely by teenagers so i have a lot of questions about how like no one from the like that library is run by a town like someone from the town hr needs to be getting involved here but yeah basically has his job at the library he's going away to some sort of like brainy camp for the summer so he just like slots in his girlfriend to like take his job for the summer to like hold it for him and it's one of those like she thinks that she's in love with him but they don't act like they don't actually like kiss very much or do anything like vaguely romantic and it seems like a weird sort of like almost platonic relationship even though the whole it's a hot mess I, I had forgotten that part of the book the whole time I was reading I was just like this almost is like too much for me if like I'm like having trouble sympathizing with Macy at all because I can't imagine dating someone like this he's just so terrible agree I have some quotes and I have some thoughts so I guess I'll start with one thought which is that he refers to this camp himself as brain camp. This is not like a funny nickname for it that his friends have come up with. It's not like a self-deprecating thing. Like he in earnest is like, yes, I am going to brain camp this summer. I'm just going to leave that right there. I think that tells you a lot about this guy. As somebody who admittedly ran in circles in high school, especially with kids who prided themselves primarily on being smart and in participating in these kinds of programs over the summer, 
and in circles of people who often would do these kinds of things that would frustrate me, I can tell you that not once did anybody ever refer to anything they were participating in as brain camp, because then we probably wouldn't have been friends anymore, because that's really annoying. No, it's too, it's too much. It is too much. Um, I do want to take a moment to kind of address why I think Macy was attracted to Jason, because I think it's important. Uh, they met when Jason was tutoring her about Macbeth after her father passed away. And she says, and I felt comfort. Finally, all I'd wanted for so long was for someone to explain everything that had happened to me in this same way, to label it neatly on a page. This leads to this leads to this. I knew deep down it was more complicated than that. But watching Jason, I was hopeful. He took the mess that was Macbeth and fixed it. And I had to wonder if he might, in some small way, be able to do the same for me. So I moved myself closer to him and I'd been there ever since. I get that. He is a guy who has it together. She wants to have it together herself. Inside, she feels like she's falling apart. Her world is totally different than what it was a few months before. And so she's drawn to that. But then when he goes to brain camp, things really start to fall apart because they're communicating primarily by email. Shout out to 2004. And I think we're getting into like a little bit of a love languages conversation here where Macy is really looking for, oh, I don't know, just like validation. And especially when you're long distance, that's really all that you have. But she is explaining away a lot of his bad behavior because he sends her all of these emails that are very newsy and not at all emotional. And she clearly like wants to hear more of his feelings, but she says, but I knew that he cared about me. He just conveyed it more subtly, as concise with expressing this emotion as he was with everything else. It was in the way he'd put his hand on the small of my back, for instance, or how he'd smile at me when I said something that surprised him. Once, I might have wanted more, but I'd come around to his way of thinking in the time we'd been together. And we were together all the time. So he didn't have to do anything to prove how he felt about me. Like so much else, I should just know. So she's settling here and because she is such a perfectionist or as at least like putting herself in this perfectionist role, it's so confusing that she is willing to settle for him. Yeah, I thought it was the whole I, – I just – I think just because I had completely blocked out this part of the book. I remembered Wes like very vividly and I did not remember the original boyfriend at all. I was So that was totally a shock to me. Yeah, so on the one hand I was like, well, she's gone through something really – traumatizing and this feels like a source of stability so I do understand this and it really fit in with like her personality and like where this place that she is at the beginning of the book on the flip side she went through something really really traumatizing and even if you're someone who is not super in touch with your feelings which I can definitely be that person at times so like parts of me like I really relate to her in a lot of ways but the thought of dating someone who is this like closed off kind of and like like I just I can't imagine especially in the wake of like a really traumatic like grief experience like this I think it would be the most lonely feeling relationship and I think she kind of comes to realize that over the course of the book as she like talks to Wes and everything obviously and they connect but I, it just made me really really sad and also like I, I, I could not every time she got one of his emails I like wanted to turn off the audiobook because I got so mad oh my gosh on audio it must have been horrifying. So speaking of those emails, here is how he ends one such email. He goes on and on. I think about like, I don't, I don't even know. I, I blocked that part out. But <laughs> here's how he concludes this very important email. He says, in view of all these things, I think it's best for us to take a break from our relationship and each other until I return at the end of the summer. It will give us both time to think so that in August, we'll know better whether we want the same things or if it's best to sever our ties 
sever our ties and make this separation permanent. <laughs> As a reminder, these are two 17-year-olds who are at least theoretically in a relationship. It's wild. Like on the, the on audio it's actually great cuz the narrator does this like voice for him when like she's reading the emails that I can't really describe or mimic, but it's like perfect um that really contributes to my rage but no it's like such a weird dynamic where it feels like he's talking down to her constantly every time they interact for the entire book where he like she's doing this library job for him like she's holding his job for him essentially so they don't hire someone else while he's like peacing out for the summer and she's having some issues with the other girls who work at the library who are dreadful and when she complains about it because with very valid complaints he like lectures her on not taking the job seriously enough i wanted to scream yes it was very frustrating the thing with the job was interesting and i will say that if i've had sort of a prevailing complaint about the other two sarah Dessen books we've talked about on the podcast it's that i feel like the heroines often very comfortably define themselves purely in relationship to their love interest. And that in those other two books, at least, I felt like that was sort of reinforced as, quote, normal. Like, it's okay for these male love interests to, like, tell you what kind of a girl you are. And it's okay and normal for you to fit into that definition that they set forth for you. I think what I really liked a lot about The Truth About Forever, and spoiler alert, this is my favorite of the Sarah Dessen books that we've covered so far on the podcast. It was frustrating because we had that moment that's bothered me about these other books where it's like we have we have Macy who is, is I think, pretty self-aware about the fact that like she doesn't really know what to do without Jason. He's away at camp for the summer. She has taken his job. She's like basically inhabiting his life as much as she can with him out of town. But in this book, as opposed to the other two, I think there's a much clearer message about like this not being a good idea and this not being a healthy relationship. Yeah, no. And I really think it's interesting the way that the boyfriend and the job are like linked kind of because, yeah, it's like, I don't know, I think it just really hammers home this whole like the, the Macy that we are introduced to at the beginning of the book feels very, very different than the Macy we are with at the end of the book and it really is like everything about her life kind of has changed and so having the boyfriend the terrible boyfriend and the job so like interconnected like this kind of her getting rid of both of those things over the course of this I don't know it just all like fits in nicely I think I mean it's maybe a little heavy-handed but I (laughs) and I mean it takes a real it's funny reading a reading a YA book as an adult like there are definitely things you have to sort of suspend your disbelief about I will say reading this one as an adult who works in a library, I really struggled with all the library stuff because it's just completely deranged that there would be like no adult supervising any of this. And it's just like two other teenage girls who are like training her. So I was like, none of this actually holds up to like any level of scrutiny whatsoever, which I did not recall from the last time I read it. But if you can kind of let that go, then I do think it all like works together, like on a story level, like really, really well. Yes. So there are these two girls, I think their names are Amanda and Bethany. Yeah, I know one of them is Amanda, and I think Bethany is the other one. And they work at the library. They are used to working with Jason, and they just think that Jason is the best. And Macy used to think that too, but now that he's gone and being such a jerk to her via email, she's not so sure. And these girls are just being terrible to her. They don't think that she's capable of doing anything. And to your point, Martha, 
there is not a grown up in sight. And so as Macy is getting used to her new responsibilities at the library, like there are only these mean girls there to help her and often they're sabotaging her. As somebody who works in a library, tell me a little bit more because I just, I too thought this was very strange and hilarious. (laughs) And I just want to make sure we're not missing any opportunities to really dig in there. So first of all, the the position that they're working, like working at an actual reference desk is not something that we would hire like high school students to do. Like the only position I think a high school student could get hired for in a library is being a shelver, just like reshelving the books. And I mean, we had like teen volunteers who did that at the library in Chapel Hill when I worked there. I mean, working on a reference desk, like which is what this job is, like when we have library school interns, like interning at our library, they still get a member of staff like with them shadowing them for like weeks before they are allowed to be on a desk by themselves and those are like people who are like in graduate school becoming librarians so this notion that there would just be like these three teenage girls on this desk with no adult around is totally wild (laughs) to me also the whole thing where the library is really really slow in the summer is also hilarious to me because almost all libraries are vastly busier in the summer and it's more true in the children's section of course because the kids are out of school and you have summer reading and everything but again as someone who worked at the public library in Chapel Hill North Carolina I can tell you that library is wildly, wildly busy during the summer. So this whole depiction of this sleepy small town library where they're just letting a bunch of 17 year olds like run the reference desk was completely wild to me. It was so distracting that like I love this book, but it really like took me out of it every time they were in one of those scenes because I was just like, this is nuts. Like this is absolutely, I just, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, they're running the reference desk and also apparently in charge of personnel because yeah, like these other girls seem to have some kind of authority over her. And I'm like, no, they're they're just high school students too. They're like studying for like standardized tests or something. Yeah, it was so funny and so weird. So while we're establishing Macy's kind of baseline at the beginning of the book, we should also talk a little bit about her family. Of course, we've lost her dad, but her mom is still very much a presence in her life, as is her sister Caroline. And I think that at first I thought we were supposed to dislike Caroline and maybe we were, but by the end of the book, I was like, Caroline rules. So Caroline is the older sister. And I actually liked the way Sarah Dessen really subverted what I think is often the expectation of an oldest sibling. And maybe it's because I am an oldest sibling who has become this perfectionist. But I loved that we have an older sibling who is like, quote, the problem child. Usually we have the oldest child in a family being like the most intense, the most eager to please. And then maybe like, as you go down the line, the kids are a little bit more laid back. But in this situation, it's flipped. And Caroline is the one who like Macy recalls sneaking out in the middle of the night all the time when she was in high school and just kind of was wild throughout her younger years. She ended up when she was in her early 20s, marrying a much older man. Um, And she's kind of like disappeared a little bit from the day-to-day of the family structure until the loss of their father. And she's decided to renovate and redecorate this family beach house, which was more her dad's like special place than anything else. And at first I was like, I feel like we're supposed to think that Caroline is this irrational, not to be trusted party girl. And for me, like she was so complicated and nuanced and she was the only one who was really encouraging Macy to process anything emotionally because she was the only one in the family who had actually worked through a lot of her feelings about their dad. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you, like, felt like you were supposed to dislike her, because I never felt that way, like, um, the whole time I was reading it. And I actually, while I was reading, I was thinking about how interesting I thought Caroline's storyline was, and the fact that it's very, I don't know, the way it's, like, to me, it felt written in a sort of, like, non-judgmental way, whereas I, I feel like if this was the older sibling of a friend of mine, or, I mean, I'm the oldest, it's hard to imagine, but if I had an older sister who was, like, a crazy party animal, like, in high school and into college, and then ends up getting married to some guy who's, like, 10 years older than her, I think, when she's like right out of college. So she's very young and marries this guy who's considerably older than her. And I don't, but she does not seem to actually have a job in this. Like, I think she's just a housewife, which is fine. I don't like, I just thought it was so interesting the way all these, like this whole journey that she's gone on to me felt like, I don't know, I really liked Caroline. And I was like, I feel like this is presented very in a very non-judgmental way. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. I don't think she's a character that I've seen before. Mm-hmm. And I do think one of Sarah Dessen's biggest strengths is just the way she builds out these casts of characters and every secondary character pretty much in every one of her books is interesting and different and often quirky and Caroline was certainly no exception and yeah I mean I I don't I think maybe some of the reviews that I read or the blog posts I read sort of position Caroline as like a potential villain in the book like somebody who could have like shaken things up for Macy and I think if there's if there's a reason to dislike Caroline at all, it might just be because a lot of the, the tension that Macy experiences with her mom is because she's almost like paying for Caroline's sins. Like her mm-hmm. mom is so disappointed, I think, in the way her older daughter turned out that she is putting all of her hopes and dreams on Macy, especially in the wake of her husband's death. And so now Macy is feeling all of the pressure of like things that maybe her mom perceives were failures for Caroline. Yeah, and I do feel like, I don't know, there are definitely moments where I thought, oh, it would be so helpful if Caroline was actually here instead of just like, she pops in and makes appearances kind of like at key moments to be like, you people are all emotionally stunted and you need serious help. And it's like, okay, well, this is clearly true. But also, you don't live here and you're busy like renovating the beach house and stuff. Like, I don't know, I just, there were moments where she popped in and I was like, it would be much more helpful if you actually like stuck around for a while instead of just, I mean, I know she has her own life and everything. She's an adult, but there's clearly some issues at home and it would be maybe helpful to have an extra person there for longer. Yeah, I also wonder how I would have read her in 2004 if I came to this as an adult because I do feel like in 2022 she's very much like on track with the way we want to talk about grief she's like you have to feel your feelings you can't push them down vulnerability like I feel like she reads Brene Brown but in 2004 I wonder if this would have felt a little bit less mainstream and a little bit more far-fetched like of course there have always been people who want you to express yourself emotionally but in 2004, like, I'm just trying to think of the climate in 2004. It was very close to 9-11. Like, the country was in a completely different place. The world was in a completely different place. And I'm just trying to remember if when I was a teenager, it felt like our collective society had more of, like, a rub some dirt in it kind of mindset about things. I mean, it's certainly, like, being in therapy and things like that were much more of a thing you kept quiet and not yeah. something that you would talk about openly the way a lot more people are more comfortable doing now. Um, so, yeah, I hadn't thought of that angle of it when I was reading. I thought about a lot of things about it that felt dated, but I had not thought about that particular aspect, maybe reading differently when it was published than it does now. Well, Caroline, I think, would definitely be a lifestyle influencer in 2022. 
Totally. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see her feed. So everything changes for Macy when she meets this caterer named Delia at one of her mother's events. Her parents ran this construction company. Her mom's become a real workaholic since the loss of the dad because she's trying to make a reality, this like big dream that they'd had to put together a new kind of complex of homes. And there's something about this woman, Delia, and all of her employees that you can tell Macy is just drawn to. The company is called Wish Catering, and she has kind of this like Island of Misfit Toys kind of group of teens working for her. And I do think that like this catering gig might have been something that like really drew me to this book when I was browsing Barnes and Noble when I was a teenager, like, well, not a teenager, when I was a young adult, I feel like that would have been really interesting to me. I'm always fascinated by like jobs like that, especially in the summertime. I can just see myself wanting to pick up the book and read more about that. And it, it does feel like all of a sudden, all of Macy's kind of viewpoints and hopes and dreams change pretty quickly. She meets Christy, she meets Monica, Wes and Bart. Those are the four main people that work for Delia. Delia is very pregnant. Um, and the whole team is just like constantly in a, in a state of chaos, which is very much out of Macy's comfort zone. What were your thoughts on coming back to the Wish team as an adult? I hadn't remembered like Delia and Bart as much, but I had remembered Monica or Monotone as they call her because she only says like three things, which is a very obvious like as soon as you start reading this character, you're like, oh, eventually later in the book, she's going to like say a complete sentence and like drop some wisdom because that's the whole point of writing a character like this. But she really sticks with you because it has been like 10 years since I read this book. And I was like, oh, yeah, the monotone character only says like two or three things for the whole book. I remember her. It was funny. I like love this whole little motley crew of teenagers in this poor pregnant woman um <laughs> running this like totally chaotic catering company and it works so well in this book obviously as a complete like it's just the complete opposite of both Macy's job at the library and kind of like the whole way she's trying to like live her life right now where she goes to bed at seven o'clock and sits in there and does SAT prep and stuff um like this is utter chaos I did have moments where I was like I love these people and I find them delightful I don't know if I actually want them to cater an event for me like <laughs> I don't know that I would actually hire them <laughs> yeah I I didn't get a sense of like if their food was any good. I couldn't tell either. I was like, I'm willing to forgive a lot if they have delicious food, but I'm unclear on that front, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I would have loved a moment where Macy like takes a bite of something. I don't know that Macy ever actually tastes anything or if she does, we don't hear anything about it. It would have been really cool if Macy like actually tried some of Delia's cooking and was like, wow, she's magical in the kitchen, but we didn't get that. Yeah, I feel like that would make a lot more sense because they seem to have plenty of work and I'm like, either their food is just incredible, so they keep getting repeat clients because even if they're a little disorganized, it doesn't matter because the food is so delicious or they just keep finding new people who like the internet was much less widespread back then. So you can't like check everyone's Yelp and Google reviews as much. So maybe they don't realize that these people are completely chaotic. So let's just, I choose to believe their food is really, really good, but it, you're right. It is not actually mentioned as being so in any way. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of talk of meatballs. It seems yeah. like that's Delia's specialty. Very standard catering type food is what they discussed from what I, I don't think it's like upscale catering no. I think it's I don't think that they are a pricey organization no. which we find out later on when all of Macy's mom's like other catering options fall through and she ends up kind of defaulting to wish and we find out at the end of the book in the scene where wish comes through to help with this big event that really what Delia has going for her while she is generally disorganized and like we're not quite sure if her food is very good 
is that she's really good under pressure. And in the final scenes of the book, really all of the details of this party that Macy's mom has been worrying about all summer, everything falls apart. Like there's a storm, nothing is going right. The caterer can't show up for some reason. And so they bring in Delia's team and it's like Delia has been training for this. She is not ruffled by any of the obstacles that come up over the course of this evening. And so I do think that like all of those scenes where things are falling apart at these other events, it pays off when we see Delia being calm, cool and collected under pressure in that final scene. Totally. This like this storyline, but honestly, everything about the book, what I kept coming back to is how well structured it was because all the think like groundwork that she lays like early in the book it all pays off in the end I'm like so curious like on a writer side to know what her writing process is like and to know how much of an outliner she is because the whole like I enjoyed Sarah Dessen's books when I read them as a teenager and I enjoyed them when I read more of them as a college student I don't know that I fully appreciated her on a craft level until this this reading now that I published a few books myself because I just found it like really impressive and yeah the payoff of wish catering the party that goes completely wrong at the end after and it's just such a like culminating moment like for that whole storyline for Macy's relationship with her mom for like the mom as she's like the character she's been like shown to be over the course of the summer who is like slowly cracking under pressure it's just I don't think Sarah doesn't get enough credit like she's really really good like this is really a really incredibly well-structured book in terms of plot in terms of all the emotional beats like it's just well done Yeah, I mean, she comes back to every little nugget that she puts out there. Everything is tied up and generally not in a way that feels too perfect. I think I felt that way more about the other books. This book felt really balanced to me. um, And I agree with you. Like, I think that she is probably underestimated as far as her craft. Let's talk about Wes. Speaking of craft and artists. dreamy yes so Wes is one of Macy's co-workers and interestingly Wes is kind of on the same schedule with his current slash ex-girlfriend as Mm -hmm. Macy now is with Jason so as we know Jason has like put them on a break it's very Ross and Rachel we were on a break (laughs) vibe until the end of the summer it's obviously completely on his terms because he's just that kind of guy And we find out that Wes also like kind of has a girlfriend named Becky. And as he says, she is incarcerated. They met when Wes was at a reform school. He also lost a parent and he got into some trouble after that. And so he spent some time at this reform school and he met Becky and she has kind of been in and out of several institutions. I believe now she's in some sort of like a drug rehab program. I wonder if the language about like incarceration might be different if the book was written in 2022. I imagine that it would be. I hope it would be. But Theoretically, Becky is getting out of whatever facility she's in at the end of the summer. So like Macy, Wes is sort of single, sort of attached throughout the summer, and it allows them to kind of get to know each other in a way that I think feels safe because I would imagine in Macy's shoes, I saw myself in Macy a lot in terms of how I was and wasn't comfortable approaching romantic and intimate relationships as a teenager. I was a super late bloomer. I was really not comfortable getting close with guys, even if I was interested in them when I was in high school. I'm a pretty private person, even as an adult. And so I think I just like really struggled to know how to open up with somebody. And I think that with Macy, she knew that she was interested in Wes, but because she felt like, oh, I have a boyfriend and he has a girlfriend, nothing can happen here. It allowed her to just kind of open up and be herself. And I I can see how if I found myself in that situation as a 17-year-old, that would have allowed me to get much closer to someone much faster. 
Same. I, de- I And I'm kind of similar to you in that way. And that, yeah, I was definitely a late bloomer. And I definitely, like, even into adulthood, I'm someone who's, like, very private. Like, it's a joke among my friends. So much I don't talk about my love life, even with, like, my dearest friends and stuff. But, yeah, and I kept thinking the whole time I was reading Macy and Wes how, I don't know, just – yeah, so first of all, like, the way they're sort of getting to know each other in a way that feels, like, safe to her because she still kind of has the specter of Jason, like, looming in the background. But also, I just kept thinking she's so – I don't want to say uptight because that's more, like, pejorative than I mean to describe her. But she's just so sort of, like, closed off and trying to keep her emotions, like, really in check and is really conscious of, like, how she presents herself, sort of, and sort of has a plan that she wants to stick to – and this feeling of, like, the more she talks to Wes, like, the more he really sees her um, and not just, like, the sort of closed-off version of herself that maybe Jason knows and maybe other people in her life are seeing. I can just see how, I don't know, how much, like, she would be attracted to that, like, this feeling of this, like, really, really handsome guy, which he has described many times as between, like, a complete dreamboat. Like, they go places and girls just stare at him. <laughs> Um, but having him like have these really open, honest conversations with her that she's not really having with anyone else. And this feeling that he sort of like sees who she really is. I can just see how as a teenage girl or even as an adult, honestly, that would just be like so attractive. Yeah. She also seems to be really attracted to this idea of, of being with somebody who didn't know firsthand what she went through with her dad. Like early Mm -hmm. in the book, she talks a lot about how painful it is to just kind of be seen in her community as the girl whose dad died and the girl who was with her dad when he died. And I'm sure that that would be very painful. And while she does eventually have those heart to hearts with Wes and, and share that story with him, I think that it was really exciting to her to meet. And it wasn't just Wes, like I think falling into this whole group of friends at the catering company, not immediately having them see her that way. And like, take pity on her and ask her questions about her loss and make assumptions about her grief and her emotional state. Like it's almost like she saw in Wes an opportunity, not only for a new relationship, but just for her to start fresh and not be somebody who, who's like most important trait was that they had just gone through this horrible tragedy. Right. Cause like, yeah. So there's this big thing about her, this really horrible, like life-defining thing about her that they don't know initially but the flip side of that is that since Wes and the rest of the whole catering crew doesn't know this about her they don't kind of get like that their vision of her is not obscured by that fact and so like they do kind of get to know who she is beyond that whereas it's like sort of described how much like she'll go places and other people are like will be like oh that's the girl who saw her dad die um this fact about her kind of obscures the truth of who she really is to everyone else because it's the thing that defines her. And so not having these people know that defining thing about her, like, yeah, so there's one big way they don't know her that well, but like they get to know her in all the other ways that matter. And one of the major ways in which Macy and Wes get to know each other is through this game called Truth. And we need to talk about this because Okay. And and if you could all see me on video now, um, I'm just looking frustrated <laughs> because I don't think this is a game, Martha. Have you heard of this game? So no. listen, as I understand it, this game, and I'm gonna use I'm gonna do some air quotes. Just picture me doing air quotes. This game called Truth is really to me just asking each other questions and you have to answer truthfully because truth 
it's honest conversation. It's having an, it's called having an honest conversation. <laughs> right. I think it's sort of like it's it's a strategy to like systematize honest conversation for teenagers who might not feel emotionally prepared to do so. And it kind of like incentivizes that honesty because, and I've, I don't even remember how you win, how you lose, but there's something about like, if you choose not to answer a question, then the other person gets to ask you like an even harder question. And then if you don't answer that one, then you lose. But Macy and Wes just have this ongoing game of truth throughout the summer and neither of them wants to lose. So they keep answering questions. Again, it just feels to me like getting to know each other on an intimate level whatever works. And it does function really nicely into this title. As I mentioned before, we're hitting it really hard with truth, truth, truth. And that really like fits into the title nicely. Yeah, I like definitely the whole time I was reading it, I was like, this isn't a game. Like it's not truth or dare. It's literally just having a conversation. On the flip side, I don't know. I feel like I've seen a lot of people talking in the past few years about how much they hate small talk, how much they feel there was someone wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a few years ago about like going on a like first date and like skipping all the small talk things you normally talk about on a first date and just jumping straight to kind of like big questions and what a more pleasant way it was to get to know someone. So I don't know. I kind of I, I understand the appeal of this game. I'm like, I don't know. I like if I didn't know someone well and it's like nice, I don't know, like instead of having to especially if you're like somewhat socially awkward or just feeling uncomfortable in a situation for any reason, instead of having to keep the rhythm of conversation going just knowing that you can ask someone just ask them a question and then they'll respond and then they'll ask you a question and you don't have to necessarily have any kind of good response if you don't have one um i don't know i could i i gotta see the appeal of it it reminded me of those decks of cards that you can buy mm -hmm. that are meant for like dinner yeah. parties or yeah. just like ice breaking events where it's yeah like cutting through the small talk and just asking each other interesting questions yeah, exactly and i do that. yeah <laughs> i really do like it as a concept and i guess like it wouldn't have worked or been quite as cute in the context of this book if there hadn't been like some sort of a game to it but martha as somebody who has written your share of love stories. Like, tell me a little bit about what you thought about the general pace of this burn between Wes and Macy. Like, what did you think about how their relationship unfolded overall? It's like such a slow burn and I love a good slow burn. So I appreciated that at a certain point, I was definitely getting to like, like it felt like they had to have the his like incarcerated girlfriend because otherwise it would just like not be credible that they didn't realize that they were in love with each other already which i think it's like really clearly telegraphed like he does realize that he's in love with her and she's just completely clueless about like she just doesn't think that he's into her um so yeah it definitely felt like a case of relying on the girlfriend as sort of an external obstacle because otherwise like there's just no reason they wouldn't have gotten together earlier and then sort of like the late reintroduction of jason even though like she never really like seriously thinks she wants to be with him anymore but yeah i did my only i really really like the reason this is my favorite sarah destin is because i like the this is my favorite of all the love stories in her book like i like i was very invested in it and it like really held up for me like i really enjoyed I don't know, like just Wes is swoony and I just, I, I love this book, but um, I do think that the, the use of the kind of on a break, kind of not boyfriend and girlfriend was a little bit like it got to be, it got, it wore on me after a while. I was like, no, I just don't believe that there's any reason why you two don't have, haven't like kissed yet because it's so obvious that you're totally nuts about each other. Yeah. Because the big, it's the big obstacle them like continuing their connection is that Macy's mom basically gets fed up with these changes that she perceives in Macy. She essentially like grounds Macy, makes her leave her job at Wish, 
is really restricting her activity. She has to work at her mom's office. She can only be home studying and like taking yoga classes because I guess that's a thing that you, that Jason was really into. So she doesn't really get to talk to Wes. She's pushing him away. She's not answering his phone calls. And then they do reconnect for a minute. And then she sees that he's out, I think, at a diner with Becky. And she, of course, thinks like, oh, they're getting back together. And no, Macy, he's breaking up with her. And anyone who's ever read a book knows what's actually happening. Right. (laughs) Come on. And so in the end, we find out that he was breaking up with Becky so that they can be together. And of course, it's like Christy and Monica, aka Monotone, who are like, come on, you guys are in love with each other. And yeah, I think that was a really satisfying ending. I thought that the Jason stuff at the end was kind of it was telling just because he does come back into the picture once once he's back from brain camp and he is businesslike as ever. And he's basically like, let's like consider getting back together. How about we both make a list about what we want in a relationship? And then we can compare notes and basically like hold each other accountable for the kind of relationship that we're going to have. Super weird. And luckily she realizes that that's a bad idea. She ends up with Wes and it's lovely. Martha, what did you think about the mom Macy resolution like obviously their relationship is also a big part of this book and it there's a lot of ups and downs I will say that in many of the reviews and blog posts that I read about this book Macy's mom is probably the character that people seem to have the biggest issue with because a lot of reviewers seem to think like yeah grief does weird things to you but like it seems as though Macy's mom has really taken it to another level and like Macy should maybe be calling her out more in the end, like they do come to an understanding, but it's tough to get there. Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting reading YA books as an adult, because I often find myself, myself, like I don't have kids, but like I find myself empathizing with the parents, like not more than the, than the protagonist, but I at least see the parent side of things. I will say I struggled in this one for similar reasons. I was just like, listen, obviously losing your husband unexpectedly is incredibly traumatic and like no judgment for maybe not handling it all that well. On the other hand, like you have this poor kid who you are completely stifling. I will say, I don't know, I guess thinking about it, if my child had lost a parent and was doing things that to me as her parent seemed like completely out of character, which I think you could argue like everything she starts doing after she starts working with Wish, it does seem out of character. Like these are good, like we as the readers and as other people like Caroline can see, these are good positive changes in Macy. But I I do, I can put myself in her mom's shoes and see how like, no, this boy comes around and like all the stuff about him, like having been like incarcerated and being like a, juvenile delinquent. I can't remember what the language surrounding it is. It's like very 2004. I was a little like, oh my God, like, come on. But again, just like trying to put myself in the adult's shoes here. I was like, okay, I can see how you would be worried if your kid had gone through something traumatizing and suddenly was hanging out with new people and completely like blowing up everything else about her life that you, that you genuinely thought like she enjoyed. Like, so the mom is frustrating, but I tried to, I, I was able I think I was less frustrated by her this time than I was reading it as like a 20 year old um just because I'm a little further removed from being a teenager now (laughs) yeah it seemed to me that the mom thought that they had like this implicit understanding Mm -hmm. about how they were going to handle life moving forward and she saw that Macy was like deviating from that plan and that wasn't a plan that Macy ever actually agreed to so they kind of had to figure that out and and I think this question of change is really interesting one because as somebody who doesn't always handle change that well, I think 
it is really easy to assume that all change is bad. And Macy's mom is looking at the changes in Macy and assuming that all of those changes are bad. And I think it's on us as the reader, as you said, Martha, to realize like, no, Macy's evolution is actually really healthy and exciting for her. And her mom just has to catch up with that. I had one other character note that I wanted to share, and this takes us back to Jason. And then I have a couple of final questions for you, Martha, before we do your book recommendations. My only other note, I wanted Jason to be a little bit more nuanced. Jason was like a little cartoon character for me. I really wanted to have like one moment with him where I felt like he was genuinely empathetic. And like, I kind of thought we were going to get there when he came back. And I think he was back in town for his grandmother's funeral or something. And I thought that we were going to have a moment of like genuine connection between the two of them. And it just never happened. So that was like, if, if there was one thing that I didn't really like, and again, this is my favorite of the Sarah Dessen books we've read for the podcast. I think I would have liked a little bit more nuance with him. I agree. Just, I, like I said earlier, I just found it like actually hard to like empathize with Macy when she was still with him and kind of listening to what he was saying. Like, I think there's a way to write that character where the like fundamentals of the character are the same, but you just make him feel a little bit more like a real person and not like a weird 45 year old in a teenage boy's body. Um, And I think it would have also made him feel like more of a legitimate obstacle to like Macy and Wes being together as well if Jason seemed more appealing. But I just like, he's just so dreadful that it makes it like I don't know I I think there could have been a little more nuance there I agree so I don't know if you saw this news but last year Netflix announced that the truth about forever is one of a handful of Sarah Dessen books to which they'd acquired the rights and they will I didn't know be the truth about forever was I know yeah. along for the right along for the rights coming out like really soon mm. I didn't know truth about forever was one they'd acquired as well yeah so they they did acquire the truth about forever are there any substantial changes sort of plot wise or big picture that you as a viewer would anticipate that they might make in terms of bringing this story from 2004 to 2022? I definitely feel like the whole story with Wes's like quote unquote criminal background and the girlfriend, I I think that is going to need some updating because it just feels really really dated to me um it also listen chapel hill is a majority white town but as far as i can tell every single person in this book is white and that is not at all reflective of the reality of chapel hill so i would expect slash hope they would diversify the cast as well unless i missed some like coding they're trying to code one of the characters as not being white but i read everyone as white in this book so if she was trying to tell us that one of them wasn't white she didn't try very hard um so that that really struck me reading it as well i couldn't imagine a YA book published in 2022 having an all white cast like this one seems to have so i would that's another thing i think that uh netflix would need to need to work on (laughs) i read it as very whitewashed also i would anticipate that the netflix adaptation will probably include some characters of color maybe some queer characters as part of this group of teens. So Martha, you've made it pretty clear that you really enjoyed the reread. On the whole, do you feel like this book held up to your memories of it? Is there anything else you kind of want to say to capture your overall experience? Yeah, it really did hold up. Like I was like, oh, this is my favorite Sarah Dessen. So when you suggested it, I was like, I want to read that one. Um, I feel like I appreciated it on a craft level even more than I did the last time I read it. The romance totally held up for me. I think that it felt, I think it just made me feel nostalgic because 2004, I was a freshman in high school and like it felt like a, such a simpler time to work compared to being a teenager in 2022. And so I don't know, even though it deals with some sort of like obviously some heavy topics like grief, it really just 
like it felt very warm and cozy to me like getting to especially just like since it's set in a place that I used to live like I'm just like oh getting to escape into this fictionalized version of Chapel Hill set 18 years ago like it just feels like a safer and happier place so it it felt made me feel very nostalgic honestly (laughs) well I'm so glad you enjoyed the experience I'm glad we came back to this book together other than the truth about forever Martha what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners yeah so I'm currently reading I'm like halfway through it I'm having a hard time putting it down it's (laughs) it's that good um it's called a lady for a duke it comes out on May 24th and it is a historical romance by Alexis Hall who wrote boyfriend material which was a big bestseller a couple years ago this one is a it's a historical but it's queer the heroine is a trans woman who she basically was fighting at Waterloo and was presumed dead. And so she took this opportunity to kind of like come back to England and live as a woman, like live as herself. But this means that her best friend who is also at Waterloo thinks that she's dead and is like really struggling with this. It is like really, really groundbreaking as a historical, like featuring a trans character. And it's so thoughtful and nuanced. And like, I've already cried like (laughs) twice while reading it. It's a really, really great book that I just hope everyone will pick up when it comes out. And I would love to see more historicals like this. I also just finished reading, oh my gosh, I've been on deadline. And so like the past few days, I've been uh, like inhaling all these books that I haven't had time to read for the past like two months, which has been really, really lovely, honestly. I'm I'm currently reading Funny You Should Ask by Alyssa Sussman, which... (laughs) is a hoot it's about a journalist who wrote like this really famous profile of an actor that like went viral kind of like 10 years earlier or something who kind of like comes back to interview him again it's deeply charming i it's made me laugh out loud like multiple times it's like and it's really really hard to put down um so yeah, I, I, I was more reading like two or three books at once um so those are the two that i'm currently reading and i'm like really obsessed with it. We'll probably go back to reading as soon as we get off this recording, honestly. <laughs> Amazing. They both sound great. Actually, Kate Spencer, who was the guest on last week's episode, also recommended Funny You Should Ask. And so it's been at the top of my list. Listeners, if you needed further convincing to pick up Funny You Should Ask, we now have had this book recommended two weeks in a row. It's really good. <laughs> go check it out. I will link it in the show notes for this episode. It will also be linked on bookshop.org over on SSR's Instagram stories this week. Martha, tell me a little bit about your work. You had a new book come out this year. Tell us everything. So my new book is called Tamarian to Metal. It's the third book in my Regency Vows series, though each one can be read um, like individually. They work as standalones. So they're all historical rom-coms that kind of put like a modern spin on Regency tropes. I always describe them as like watching a sitcom set during the Regency. Um, Tamarian to Metal is a marriage of convenience featuring a very prim and proper debutante and a very scandalous theater owner who get married to she can kind of improve his reputation and the reputation of his theater but they're just going to be friends and no no feelings will develop obviously and since it is a romance novel um everyone can guess how well that plan works out for them there's a very chaotic kitten and a lot of meddling friends and yeah it's it's a lot of fun i hope (laughs) that sounds so fun well i will also link to mary and to metal and your other books in the show notes this week Martha, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much again for inviting me. (laughs) Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk.
Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.